by now, <clears throat> at this time in the retreat, most of you must have had the insight that for the most part were consumed by and concerned with who I am, what I want, and what I believe. <clears throat> These thoughts or statements that begin like that linger around in our mind most of the time. <clears throat> and they actually disturb us and prevent us from staying present with our meditation object. The reflection on who I am, I am this, I am that, what I want, I want this, I want that, and what I believe. These habitual reflections are due to extremely strong conditioning. And you can see just how difficult it is to overcome them or to even become aware of them in the mind. Such thoughts all arise from not being aware of what our current or present experience is. And as such, when we're not present with this experience, the mind is not steady, not calm. It's restless and wandering around. Tonight I want to talk about three very tenacious mental states that because they're so heavily and deeply conditioned and arise so frequently and influence our view of the world, they tend to keep us stuck where we are. Buddha calls these three mental states vain fancies, obsessions and obstructions to spiritual progress. <clears throat> I want to talk about what they are, how they arise, and how they can be overcome. In the Pali language, there is a word, papancha. Literally, it means that which is an obstacle in front of the feet. But it really means that which is an obstacle on our path, which is a hindrance, an impediment, a burden. It also has the meaning, this word papancha also has the meaning of expansion or profusion, diffuseness differentiation, the manifoldness of things. So this word papanche is what I'm going to speak about tonight. The illusion, the obsession, the hindrances that are diffuse throughout our mind. The three papanches are Mana, or what is commonly translated but not quite accurately translated, is pride. Tanha, 
which is commonly translated as craving or attachment, and diti, which is translated in this case to mean wrong views. So the first papancha, who I am. The Pali word is mana, translated as pride, but a more accurate representation might be self-preoccupation or self-esteeming conceit. In any sense, when pride or when mana is present in the mind, there's a tenacious and extreme solidification around the sense of I, a preoccupation with myself, me, mine, or the sense of I. It occurs mostly in comparison with others and among all groups, types, individuals of people. We see it here in retreat when, as yogis, we look at other yogis and evaluate ourselves in terms of them. And we all do it. But what distinguishes mana from pride is that there are three types, three types of mana. There's superior mana, equality mana, and inferior mana. And the first is that when we look at others or compare ourselves to others, we find or we choose to believe ourselves or we compare ourselves, evaluate ourselves as being superior to them in some way. In English, this is definitely pride. I'm a better yogi. I can sit longer. I can walk slower. I can eat less, sleep less. It's a superior placing of the self above someone else. I think in the United States particularly, where we have this sense of political equality or all humans are born equally or created equal or whatever, that there's a sense that somehow we are all equal. And some of us take pride in the fact that we are all equal, thinking that someone thinks they're better than I am. Well, really they aren't. We're really equal. It's a bringing of yourself up to equal with those who might actually be better than you in some way. Again, it's a solidification around the sense of I, me, my qualities, my attainments, my abilities. There's a superiority mana, the equality mana, and there's also the inferiority mana. It's an evaluation of oneself as being inferior to another and solidifying the sense of me and mine around it 
And we see it here as self-judgment. The negative self-judgment, I'm no good, I can't do it. I don't have the opportunities for whatever reason. It's a real self-depreciation. Leads to an attitude of, why bother? I'm inferior, I can't do it anyway. Most of us are willing to, and would quite like to, generate the superior pride. We like being better, being distinguished, being different somehow than everyone else. This pride, mana of the three types, is a papancha because it diffuses throughout our life. It differentiates us from others in all, along all parameters, whether it's in appearance, being more handsome, being taller, being more beautiful, being thinner. We take pride in how we compare to others. Or in what we own, what we possess. Bigger house, more expensive car, better clothes. We identify ourselves with and differentiate ourselves from others by attaching to the I that is, that owns these things. Appearance, property, anything else, education, how smart we are, how healthy we are, how what our abilities are in athletics or in writing or Everything we do in our life, we can place ourselves as better than some people, equal to some people, and inferior to some people, and we do it. All the time creating a sense of self or I, which becomes more and more solid as this mental state proliferates in the mind. In the United States, or maybe everywhere, but certainly here, there's a lot of emphasis placed on, and it's highly valued, that people differentiate themselves, become distinguished in some ways. Maybe that's why the Guinness World Book of Records is so popular. People will do anything, and you can do just about anything, to get in it. It distinguishes you from everyone else in the world that's ever lived, in fact. You can do something. That's great. It's really... Most of us spend a lot of time trying to do it in some ways. And we get a lot of encouragement in this society to do it. You might notice, though, when we find ourselves in judging, observing, or comparing ourselves to another person along any of these parameters that I've mentioned. 
when we get a sense of ourselves or them and we make this judgment, there is a sense of that's the way it is forever. When you look at yourself and you judge yourself negatively compared to some other yogis here, somebody who can sit for three or four hours and not move and you have a hard time getting through an hour and you judge yourself, God, I'm really, I can't do it. I'm just not so good. As that thought gels around your sense of yourself, it appears and feels like that's the way it's going to be forever. Permanence pervades pride. You know, in the Buddhist teachings, they talk a lot about the concept of the characteristic of anicca, or impermanence of all things. There's a couple of things that the Buddha did say are not impermanent. And one of them is concepts. And when you have a concept of being better or worse than someone, that's permanent. It doesn't change. Concepts don't change. They stay the same. It's not only who we are individually that gets stimulated or identified and strengthened when pride's in the mind. We can also do it as groups of people or as committees or groups or countries or towns or Theravadans as opposed to Mahayanans or whatever you identify with as who you are or part of you or what you are part of becomes in that time a vehicle for the arising and strengthening of the concept of myself or mana in the mind. It also happens among dharma-farers. As I mentioned, yogis often can compare themselves to each other and find that they can sit longer or better or not so good as the other or that they have more knowledge about the Dhamma than others or that the quality of their meditation is better or that their experiences are more subtle than others. We hear about, you know, some, some yogis have joy or some yogis have piti or happiness or equanimity or concentration and we might feel that we don't have that. And we get locked into this evaluation of ourselves as being inferior, solidifying around an idea of who I am. Even among Dharma teachers too, it's pretty pervasive and prevalent. Believing or thinking that they're more popular or less popular than others, more skillful at giving talks or less skillful, better attainments in meditation or whatever. Mana is pervasive throughout our mind. 
and it's very deeply rooted and extremely difficult to unhinge or disconnect from. In the Dhamma realm, there should be some distinction between what is called wholesome pride and unwholesome pride. My teacher in Burma used to like to talk about the wholesome pride that one could have after asking you what pride was good. Nobody could ever figure it out. And then he'd proceed to tell you that, well, if you see uh, some yogis who are able to practice for 14 hours a day, seven hours sitting, seven hours walking, or if you see some who are able to sit still for an hour, or to really be mindful or to not talk to other yogis, if you see them and compare yourself to them and say, I can do it. if they can do that, I can do that, then this is good, a good competitive attitude, <laughs> or it's a, a good pride to do it, so that when you can or do practice as well as someone else, then he said that's a good, a wholesome pride. But to have pride in what worldly manners, worldly matters, not concerned with spiritual practice or insight or liberation of mind, then it's really strengthening a sense of I. Whereas Dharma practice is really freeing, the, freeing oneself from the confusion and delusion of the sense of I. Again, this pride or mana is extremely subtle and having identified it, you can be able to, or you may be able to, see in your day how the judging we do of others creates a sense of ourself or myself differentiating us from all others. One time when I was practicing in Burma, I'd been there for some months, and one of the Burmese monks, I was in his little kuti talking to him, and he asked me quite point blank, he says, "Uh, did you ever practice without talking? (laughs) Because I would talk most days to someone. And he said, did you ever practice without talking? And I said, well, not very much. Most days I end up talking to somebody for some reason, even if it's just a little chit-chat around lunch or something. And he said, well, I've practiced that way a little bit. He said, you should try it sometime. So I made a resolve in my mind right then. All right, for three days, I was <laughs> pretty cautious. For three days, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to try to practice without speaking to anyone. As it happened, I had occasion to talk all three of those days and didn't succeed very well with my resolution, but I did get a sense of what it's, how beneficial it could be, so at the end of those three days I took another resolve to not speak for four days to make it a whole week. I don't remember what happened during those four days. I can't remember whether I spoke or not. But it was some time later that friends of mine from the States 
Joseph and Sharon and other people came to Burma to practice at the same time in the same place I was. And when they came, one night, one afternoon they came in, I was very excited and I was talking to them and what's going on in the States and da-da-da-da-da. And after I was speaking to them, one of the other yogis that was there came up to me and he said, oh, I see you're talking again. And I said, yeah, why? What's going on? He says, you haven't said a word in six weeks. (laughs) I had forgotten all about it. Didn't know anything about not talking. I was just so into my practice, I couldn't be bothered with any excuse to talk to anyone. And he said, I says, you were, you've been really into it. He says, nobody's heard from you for six weeks. <laughs> but in myself, I didn't have any sense of having done anything. And it was really during that time, I, when I reflected back on it, I could see how Every time a thought came up to say something to someone, to write something, to do any form of communication, almost invariably there was this tremendous upwelling of collecting together who I am, what I believe, what I want, how I'm going to present myself to this person, how I'm going to become someone who speaks. And without speaking, that whole Effort and energy just really falls away. The habit of becoming someone drops away. So the first of the diffusions, obstructions to practice is mana, pride. The second papancha, or obsessive, proliferating concern in the mind, is with what I want. In Pali, it's tanha. It's the thirst or the clinging or the craving for experience. It's the unfulfilled longing for anything, everything that we have. Again, the Buddha identified craving or tanha as the root cause or the root of all suffering or unhappiness or dissatisfaction in our life. For the most part, it's quite easy to identify or recognize that we crave for sensual experience. We want to feel good. We want to taste good food. We want to hear only pleasant sounds, to feel soft clothes, warm temperature, and to see beautiful things or good-looking things. Another less obvious but equally pervasive craving in the mind, is for becoming. Becoming something, someone other than we are right now. Even to become a better yogi. To become anything. 
there is a clinging and craving for that new experience of becoming. There's also clinging or craving for non-becoming, which can maybe best be exemplified by the now current popularity of this recipe book for suicide that's so popular in America now. People are cling to the idea of not being also. It's important to recognize that craving and clinging arises when the feeling we have about some object, some idea of an object or something, when that feeling is pleasant, we crave for it, more of it, pleasant feeling. When it's unpleasant, we crave to get away from it. In either case, pleasant feelings or unpleasant feelings, we crave, we cling. When we're not content with what we have, when we're not satisfied, the mind can proliferate in creating images and ideas and desires and wants and fantasies of things we want to do or to have or to experience other than to be present with our discontentment. In Burma, very poor country, people do not have much material goods. And so when Sayadaw gives this talk, or when Sayadaw talks about the Papanchas, he talks about big cravers that live in the West, mostly. But there's cravers in Burma too, it's just they don't have the opportunity to fulfill their craving. In our society though, craving, there's one whole segment of our society that is really really understands the way craving works in the mind. The advertising man. He really knows how to take this mental state and move you through your life unaware. You know, shop till you drop. When we, can, when we imagine that these things that we want, these experiences we want, are so pleasurable and satisfying, we'll continue to crave them. We believe that somehow getting the pleasurable experience of these things, or having these things or doing these things, somehow that pleasure if we pile up enough of it, it's going to make us happy. But now that we're in our mid-twenties to mid-forties to mid-sixties, we have had a lot of desires fulfilled. Are we happy? Still craving. Craving doesn't end, ever. 
craving leads to more craving. Monks, you know, when you become a monk or nun, you give up all of your worldly things, you get offered a bowl and robes, a pair of sandals, free from craving, hardly. I spent hours, weeks, days trying to get just the right robe. <laughs> In Burma you get given these big robes that are really heavy and come hot season they're really like wool blankets. And there are, there's some material that comes from China. They call it CYZ. I don't really know what it is. CYZ material. It's as light and as thin as silk and you don't sweat. But it's expensive. I don't know how much I craved a set of robes like that. Eventually I got some. A couple of months before I disrobed. (laughs) (laughs) Craving works, huh? (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. (laughs) When we begin to see the nature of craving in the mind, we can see how it's just all over the place. It just proliferates and fills up our whole day, our whole experience. And it doesn't have to be much, you know. Can you walk by the bulletin board without looking? The craving is there. Can you see the craving and let it go? Really tough. Really tough. So the first diffusion or mental state that differentiates us from each other is pride. And the second is craving. The third is concern with what I believe. This one is more subtle, I think, in our experience because we're not so tuned in to what we believe. We just kind of go through life doing what's habitual and don't really think about it so much. But it's in Pali, it's the word diti, or it's the wrong views or beliefs or speculation, but specifically about spiritual practice, spiritual goals, or spiritual attainments. The Buddha said this, the wrong view of personality belief or ego belief, has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded beings. Wrong views or wrong understanding of what we are experiencing has its source in ignorance, delusion, or confusion, which, when present in the mind, obscures the nature of our experience or the object. We can't see clearly And so we can't have the right understanding of what it is we're seeing. It's opposed to wisdom because wisdom rightly understands what we're experiencing or what we're seeing, what we're observing. Again, views or wrong views are associated with the sense of I or me or mine. And when we have a sense, or when we identify 
an I, a self, a me that experiences. The wrong views that can proliferate from that are endless. For example, in many cultures, and pervasive here in the West also, in, some, in many religions, there's a view that the I, somewhere in there, exists forever and somehow just gets passed on from one life to the next, whether it's reincarnation or rebirth or whatever, without getting into those terms. It's just a sense of whatever it is, the innermost inherent essential I is here now and will be somewhere else later, exists in some form throughout eternity. Or there's the belief that the most inherent essence of I is only present for this lifetime. And when this body dies, or this mind dies, body-mind process dies, that's it, finished. Nothing goes on beyond it. And in fact, I think a lot of our behavior in the West, the way we live with utter disregard for much beyond our own life, is really a manifestation of, or behavior indicative of, that belief even though we might not consciously say that we believe that, our behavior indicates it. That once this is gone, forget it. I'm not going to be back. Or we believe that what happens to us, our good luck, our bad luck, is karma. Kind of a glib or rather superficial understanding of karma actually a wrong understanding of karma as being the cause of all our difficulties, mostly. Or believing in God or gods that influence or control or somehow manipulate our life or the events in our life in some way. These are all, and there's many more, but these are all wrong views or wrong understandings that can arise once you have posited or once you have believed that there is an I that these things can happen to. But the Buddha taught that a being normally called a man, a woman, an ego, a personality, or whatever, is just a conventional designation of what experientially is just nama rupa, mind and matter or mentality and materiality that's in a kind of ever-changing flux. And that there really is no inherent thing within it. The way we can arrive at wrong views, or the way that we can 
falsely believe that there is an I or an essence to this process that we are, it's because of a perversion of mind. In Pali it's called vipalasa. It's a twisting of the mind from what is real. It's an inversion or perversion or a derangement. Sayadaw calls it hallucination. But I think inversion or perversion is better. And the way it works is sometimes the functioning of the mind is inverted such that when you look at a scarecrow, say, in a garden, thinking that it's a human being would be a perversion of mind. Or when you actually see the scarecrow, seeing it as a human would be a perversion of perception. Insisting on and believing that that scarecrow is a human is a perversion of view. So for the yogi who's sitting here now with knee pain or back pain, thinking that it's my knee is perversion of mind. Thinking or perceiving that it is my knee is perversion of perception. Insisting on believing that this is my body, my knee, and my pain, wrong view. There's no end to the types of wrong views or behaviors that result from wrong views in spiritual practice. Depending on what you do when you bow or pay respects to this Buddha Rupa here, it may or may not be based on wrong view. If you're expecting some good luck from this, Here, wrong view. (laughs) If you're burning incense or offering flowers or whatever, expecting some supernatural being or some heavenly being to kind of pull you through this retreat, (laughs) again, wrong view. And these are just the ones that we might get involved in. You can look around the world and see all sorts of behavior It's coming from a place of inversion of mind. When we begin to see the proliferation of thoughts and ideas and judgments around these three papanchas, around pride, craving, and views, we, it's pretty easy to acknowledge that it springs from and it continues to create a tremendous amount of unhappiness and dissatisfaction with our experience. It's really hard to judge yourself positively or negatively against others and to stay happy. It's really hard to be craving for other experience and to stay happy. 
and the confusion that results from having wrong views about spiritual practice or wrong views about an I or myself, tremendous attachment, confusion, doubt, and wavering in one's practice. But it isn't necessary that we suffer with these diffusions or perversions forever. Actually, the practice that we're doing here overcomes each of them in its own way. I'll talk briefly, I'll talk briefly about overcoming each of these papanchas. When we know, or when we begin to acknowledge that the judging and comparing we do with others, whether it places ourselves in a superior, inferior, or an equal position, when we begin to see and acknowledge that it creates unhappiness, that it creates dissatisfaction, or it creates unpleasantness to some degree in our life, we can begin to reflect wisely on just what it is that we're, how it is that we're evaluating. What does it mean to elevate ourselves so much because we know more than someone else, or because we have more than someone else, or because we can do something that someone else can't do? We can begin to reflect that, in fact, any of that is totally insignificant. It really doesn't matter. One bit. Better or worse or equal. Empty. There will always be greater and lesser beings, no matter what parameter you want to evaluate yourself on. And anybody who gets their name in the Guinness World Book of Record sets himself up to be knocked off. Or somebody's going to try to beat them doing whatever they were doing. When we can reflect also that any attainment, any possession, anything that we do or have is only temporary. It's not going to last long. It's soon going to be over. When we can begin to understand the impermanence of all of these experiences, then we can step back from our attachment and identification with our judgments of ourselves and others. When we become a victim of mana or pride, the mind really gets pretty stiff and hard brittle, unyielding, unbending. And it really creates quite a lot of difficulty in our interpersonal social relationships. It creates a lot of isolation, estrangement, and competition with others. <clears throat> By reflecting on the impermanence of all of these experiences, we can begin to temporarily and partially reduce the proliferation of mana in our mind. 
And when we practice insight, and we train, and we begin to train the mind to connect with and to stay with the objects and begin to observe clearly what's happening, we can begin to see the momentary nature of experience. We can begin to see that new experiences come as the old experiences go. Whatever is present now will soon be gone. We can see it, whether it's vibrating or tingling or rising or falling or a thought or a feeling or emotion, whatever it is. It doesn't stay around long. If we can observe this in the course of noting, actually being present for the arising, the duration and the passing away of experience, we can empirically validate that impermanence is a characteristic of all experience. That being so, how can you take pride in something that doesn't last? How can you judge yourself as so solid when that experience doesn't last for a split second? It's because we don't see the impermanence of experience that we attach to and proliferate pride. When we begin to see impermanence clearly, pride drops away. The distinction, the differentiation of I from others drops away in the experience of the momentariness of phenomena. And once that insight is firmly established in the mind, then when we reflect on the past experiences or on future experiences, we can realize trouble ahead, trouble behind. (laughs) Briefly, this is pride. How to get a handle on this tendency of mind. Overcoming craving. It's really clear. Not getting what you want is really dukkha, real unhappiness, real suffering. Whether it's not wanting a knee pain or wanting success or possessions or whatever it is, not getting it is really suffering. It's real unhappiness in our life. We are able to crave and cling to and want experience because we do not see that the promise of happiness that experience holds out to us is empty. It's like if you were going to go buy a used car and you saw from a distance this beautiful shiny car, the color and shape that you wanted, whether it's a Ford or a Mercedes, doesn't really matter. And from a distance, the mind starts wanting and craving. 
And so you go talk to the owner, and he says, yeah, just had a new paint job. I wrecked it last week, but I fixed it up. Doesn't have any engine, the brakes are no good. Upholstery got burnt a little bit, but it's got a new paint job, looks great. How long would you crave for that car? Not long. Because you'd see the emptiness of it. It's not going to offer you any satisfaction or happiness. The same could be said for most experiences that we think we want. If we could look a little deeper into that experience, into actually getting what it is that we think we want, actually having that experience or getting that object, we would see that the happiness it promises is a little bit used, not quite what it promises to be. When we can begin to see that nature of all experience, that it cannot offer happiness, any lasting happiness, the mind can find it easier to let go of craving for that experience. I'm having to cut these a little bit short as time is moving on. Overcoming DT, overcoming wrong views. <clears throat> Ordinarily, as we're sitting here, I think most of us have the somewhere not too far below the surface, we have this belief that I'm listening to a Dhamma talk. Unfortunately, you're not. Sound waves are coming, vibrating along, and they're striking your ear, an eardrum or a, a sound or a sense base, and they're creating some hearing consciousness, and then there's reflecting on what's heard, and through a great proliferation based on this wrong view of I, we come up with thinking, I'm sitting here listening to a Dhamma talk. No, you aren't. Hearing is taking place, understanding is taking place, thinking is taking place. Proliferation of wrong views is taking place. (laughs) (laughs) Understanding the selflessness or the lack of a center, the lack of an I, is a little more difficult because the experience seems so real. But when in our close observation in meditation, when we're really close to and continuous with the arising objects, we can begin to get a sense of momentary arising of random phenomena. We cannot make it happen. We cannot make it stop. It is not us. It is not me. We can't control it. 
And it's easy to see. You can't control the body. You can't make it feel good. And you certainly can't control the mind. It's ungovernable. This is really kind of very surface and a superficial, but also at a quite profound level. This is the essence of the understanding or the characteristics of anatta or selflessness. But because we don't see so precisely or continuously enough, we are continually taking our experiencing and sticking it onto me, I, mine. If we could stay present with just the arising objects or be continuous, a little more continuous, with clear observation, we would begin to get a greater sense of just being aware of random phenomena without an eye behind it, without a judging faculty behind it. By noting, by observing carefully, by connecting with the arising object, staying with it, and observing it clearly, we can begin to see how objects arise and how objects fade away. And when we do that, when we really see the nature of impermanence and not just think about it, we can't take pride, can't hang on to and glorify ourselves with any of those experiences. And when we see the unpleasant nature of, or the unsatisfactory nature of our experience, whether it's the pain in the body or the unhappiness in the mind, or the false promise of all our fantasies, when we begin to see that, we can really let go of craving for other experience. And when the mind is precise and continuous, and understand, sees and understands the random nature of our experience, the empty phenomena rolling on, we really have right understanding that there really is no I behind it. And in this way, through reflection, we can begin to reduce the proliferations in our mind but only through actual noting practice, actual observation or insight practice, can we begin to see clearly and uproot these tenacious tendencies in the mind. Let's sit for a while.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.